I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you have. The team at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com are working hard night and day, seven days a week, to bring you information to help you stretch every dollar at Clark Deals, giving you deals on a variety of items, those you need and those you want. So we've got a, a real conundrum going on in the United States where somewhere around 30% of us have been able to continue our jobs working from home. So you've got this nearly third of Americans who did, for the most part, go to offices, now working from home, and employers are trying to figure out how they bring people back. Well, big employers are basically saying, we're not bringing anybody back into our offices because we're too scared that we're going to spend the next 10 years defending ourselves in lawsuits. So here's the backstory: What employers fear is that people will come back to an office environment, develop coronavirus, have long-term health problems, or pass away. In either case, people would then turn around or their heirs would turn around and sue the employer for failing to provide a safe environment that cost a loved one his or her life or that individual worker cost his or her health. So employers face a serious challenge. Uh, you know, one of the things that is a Bermuda Triangle for employers is how in the world do you make people safe using the bathroom? I mean, nobody's able to go to work for an eight or nine hour shift and not go to the bathroom. And the bathroom is an area where keeping it uh, safe from infection for people is very, very hard. In the office itself, you can create a much safer environment by having people work different shifts by reducing how many people are there. A lot of employers are putting up plastic shields like those, plexiglass shields, like you may have seen if you've been out and about in stores where the, around cashiers, there will be those plastic shields. And so creating conditions that reduce the risk, but employers still are afraid. So they're working the halls of Congress very hard right now to get a liability shield passed where employers, if they follow, ultimately this is kind of how it would work, if they follow a set of prescribed guidelines issued likely by the CDC, is what's been bandied about, Centers for Disease Control, that they would have a coronavirus lawsuit shield from being sued for making somebody ill who has lifelong health problems or somebody dying from getting coronavirus. It will not exactly be an easy thing to figure out where somebody got it who got coronavirus, but employers 
are really, really worried about what is referred to in legal circles as tail risk, that that you would end up with a liability that would go on year after year after year for what would happen to somebody coming down ill with coronavirus. I don't know how Congress is going to ultimately act on this. There's strong, there's a strong push among a number of uh, members of the Senate to create a blanket immunity and the initial soundings are without even requiring following guidelines. That will never fly. But the reality is big employers account for roughly half of employment in the United States, and they are not worried necessarily about your safety or your life, but they're worried about their wallets. And that's why you're going to see a full court press over the next couple of weeks to have that liability shield in place. There's another reality, though. Employers have found to their surprise that people's productivity for the most part has been just fine with people working remotely working from home and I think it's clear that this is going to change things for potentially a generation that it will be much more accepted as something that people do all the time or a significant amount of time that they do work from home remotely whatever you want to call it. Uh, please post questions for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternating asking your questions. And Kim, who are you starting with today? Today up first is Jennifer. Jennifer says, first of all, I want to thank you for your sincere kindness, compassion, and love for humanity. I am always refreshed after listening to you. Thank you. Very Which sweet. is so ironic you read that because really that thing I just talked about with the big employers sounded so <laughs> cold and heartless for me. Well, you're not the one doing it, so I think she still might have a point. She goes on to say, I received a substantial stimulus check as I am married with four children. I cashed it and I paid my property taxes with it, but now I keep wondering how we, as taxpayers, how are we going to pay back all of this stimulus money? What are your thoughts? Well, the stimulus money is actually a very small part of all the money that the Congress and the president are spending to try to keep the economy on an even keel. We're talking about trillions of dollars and budget deficits as a percent of the size of the economy only seen during, as best I can recall, the Civil War and World War II. Not that I was around during either of those events, but knowing my history. So we face a significant challenge over the next 20 years, really, paying back the bills from what we're spending in these various coronavirus emergency spending bills. But the reality is if we did not do what's going on, and especially the actions early on and very thorough and quick by the Federal Reserve, we would be in a deep, deep depression along the lines of the Great Depression. And only the spending going on and the decisions by the Federal Reserve 
have prevented that. Now, this is being said by someone, if you've listened to me any number of years, you know that I've been such a hawk about spending only what you have. And I've been a fan forever in an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would require the U.S. government, except in time of war or extreme emergency, running a balanced budget like states have to do. So this is way outside my comfort zone with the spending going on, but it is an unfortunate necessity of the coronavirus health emergency. Joel? Clark Neal says, I know you're not a fan of annuities, but I've heard you recommend longevity insurance to supplement income later in life. Do you have recommendations, though, for, sh- for shopping and where to go for longevity insurance? That is a great question because it is a fairly rare product. And so just so you know, longevity insurance is actually a type of annuity. Uh, I said it. Didn't I say it? I mean, I never say that word because I say that it is a cuss word to mention the word annuity, but it is something that is a very valid product. And one website that I've liked over the years is immediateannuities.com. And they offer both the kind that turns a pile of cash you have into essentially a a self-help kind of pension where you know you're not going to outlive your money. And then the idea of a longevity annuity is you buy it usually in your 60s to start paying you money at age 80 or 85. The idea being that whatever money you've saved only has to last you till that particular birthday, typically 80 or 85, and then the money um, will flow in huge dollars from, from that age, 80 or 85, for the rest of your life. The idea being insurers know a lot of people aren't going to make it to that date, and that's how they can end up paying you substantially more if you do make it to that age. It gives you certainty that you'll never outlive your money. Kim? Justin says we're going to buy a new used new used car and we'd like to give our 2003 car to someone in need, not necessarily a charity, but someone in need. How can we give someone a car for free without causing any tax problems for them or for us? Do we just write the sale price as zero on the title? So you're allowed to give any individual, doesn't have to be a relative, any individual something worth up to $15,000 either in cash or in kind, without any tax implications for them or you. So this can be a completely non-taxable event. And it's just really neat. What you would do is print out something like from Edmonds or Kelly Blue Book, um, the value of that older vehicle that you want to give to a person in need. You print that out, file it away with your tax return, It doesn't have to be part of your tax return, but if you ever were challenged saying that you made an excessive gift, you have the proof of what that was worth, and it'll be worth substantially less than 15 grand, and you'll be A-OK. The only thing the individual who you give the vehicle will face is a number of states have a vehicle fee when you get a used vehicle, if it's given to you, that calculates a tax based on 
what the state says that vehicle was worth at that time. But even that is not a major tax. And it's a really kind, thoughtful thing you're doing, making wheels that are no longer important to you valuable to somebody who wheels could be everything for them getting to work. The good news about your timing buying a used vehicle is used vehicle prices are down depending on whose data you believe from 11 to 17 percent right now from where they were a year ago meaning that buying a used vehicle right now if you don't have to trade in something else is a steal of a deal joel clark sam says i'm a single individual and i want my kids to have the information on my bank accounts and other passwords when i pass away I don't want to give them that information now, nor do I trust it with anybody else. So I'm wondering if you have any ideas of how I could safely get that information to them. I suppose one way would be in a will, locked up in a lawyer's office, but I was curious if you had any other thoughts. Yeah, the the will thing doesn't work extra. Uh, that's not a great thing because there's actions that probably need to be taken pretty quickly at the time of your passing. So... There is no right answer to this if you're worried that if you let somebody know what accounts you had while you're living, that they may try to abscond with the money. Um, If you're looking for the easiest way, remember that you have to trust someone. So I would have a list of all your assets. I would have a list of your access to your accounts, your usernames and passwords, in your will, you should state who gets um, access to your accounts, your online life. And you could, if there's a trusted individual in your life who you know you could trust completely, you could give that individual a folder that they open only in the event of your death. And in there would be those instructions. If you had a loved one who you knew you could trust thoroughly, who's not a friend or work colleague or something like that, that you could give that to them that is something only to be opened in event of death. But it, it is something that requires at least a minimal level of trust in one individual. Actually, I guess it's kind of a maximum level of trust in one individual. It's time for the Clark Rave. That's our segment where we look at the goodness in people during what's a tough time for so many of us. And I've talked about specific acts of kindness day after day that individuals ad hoc have put together. And I'm so inspired by the things that people, by their own initiative and creativity, are making happen. And if you're inspired too, but you don't have what that thing is. I want to tell you that there are organizations out there that can direct you to volunteer activities that you can engage in right now to improve your community, to help out society at a time that the need is really, really great. One of them you can look up is All for Good, and that's a database of many thousands of volunteer activities you can get involved in. Some require you to get out there and do things in person. Others can actually be done 
from the comfort of your own home. And so I want you to know that there's a lot that you can do to help others. And I want to talk about people that are AARP members. AARP has, if you get the AARP magazine, you've seen this, Create the Good is what their initiative is called. And so it gets um, AARP members connected with organizations that need your volunteer labor right now. And so you can get engaged, get involved, and make a difference. You don't have to invent the volunteer activity. They have it for you. Thanks for taking time out of your day to join us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Now, one industry was singled out for a special federal bailout with grants, and that's the nation's airlines. The three full fare airlines, the three mid-price airlines, and the three deep discount airlines all got a pool of money made available to them in grants and loans as well. And you would have thought that that would have been a positive for the future of these airlines and the value of their stocks. But unfortunately, the airlines are reporting that demand is down roughly 95 to 99% on the routes that airlines are still flying. Airlines have very large staffs and massive fixed costs. Imagine what it costs for those airplanes, all the equipment to maintain them, the facilities to maintain them, the spare parts. I mean, it is an industry that requires a great deal of revenue coming in, and right now there's basically nothing. The airline industry got a stake in its heart when the nation's most famous investor, Warren Buffett, announced uh, as this year virtually instead of in person before 20,000 people in Omaha, announced that he had sold all his holdings. He, had, he was perhaps the largest single investor in each of the four biggest airlines, American, United, Delta, and Southwest, and he sold out 100% of his stock in all four. The reason is that he sees no prospects for profitability for the nation's airlines until people feel safe again, which is going to require effective treatment for coronavirus or series of treatments that reduce the impact for those who survive and reduce the fatality rate for those who right now are passing away from coronavirus that others getting it of similar profile in the future will survive because of treatments available. So the fear that people have of being in a confined space like an airplane cabin, combined with the fact that travel, except for business, is supposed to be an escape and something of joy, nobody feels much joy when they see everybody wearing masks and being spaced out on a plane if there's space available to space you out to reduce infection as much as possible that no food snacks or drinks are being served because that would be dangerous i mean come on 
that is not something that people say, yippee, there's a sale to wherever for $29, I'm going to buy it. In fact, I got an email from Frontier Airlines on Saturday offering, it was either $20 one-way fares or $29 one-way fares, and I kind of chuckled to myself, deleted it without opening it, even see what deals they were. Because the idea of booking travel right now for a travel maniac like me just holds no allure. And so the airline industry faces a very tough time. And then think about the airline employees, the ones in direct customer contact, uh, particularly flight attendants that have lengthy contact with others on an aircraft. This is a, a real fear for those flight attendants that they are putting themselves in harm's way, that their health is at risk, their life potentially is at risk. And so air travel will remain depressed until there is a treatment that is proven effective, because that's going to come before a vaccine. And that will be when an effective treatment that people trust is available, that's when you'll start to see a meaningful recovery in not just air travel, but cruises and other forms of travel that people for now are like, no way, not on your life and not on mine. We're alternating asking your questions that you posted. And Kim, what do you have? This is from Stephen. He says, I listen to your podcast often and I heard your most recent piece where you talked about independent truckers and the difficult times that we're facing right now. As an independent contractor, sole proprietor, I was approved for a small PPP loan. This is great and it's going to help keep me afloat until things get back to normal. All of my income is in the form of 1099s. The money was deposited into my business savings account. Is there a certain way that I should be moving this money around in order to prove it's my payroll so I qualify for forgiveness? So this is a very timely question. There are new guidelines that accountants are waiting for that are going to be issued by, I think it's going to be the IRS, not the SBA or, um, or Treasury, the parent organization of the IRS that will lay out what documentation you're going to have to provide in order to have either partial or complete loan forgiveness for PPP money. So right now, there's educated guesses of what you should do. And the ultimate caution would be to have the money in a separate account that you get from PPP and then just document how the money was used for an eligible expense. Now, remember, three-quarters of the money in order for forgiveness has to be for um, payroll purposes, and then the other 25%, things like rent, certain overhead expenses. And so until the guidelines are issued, and the rumor is they'll be issued later this week, it is a bit of a shot in the dark how you document and how you prove that you are, in fact, eligible for partial or complete loan forgiveness. 
So for now, I'd say it's early enough in the game that all you have to do is keep as best records as you can of how you use the money, be able to document that, and in absence of specific step one, step two, step three, step four rules, that's the best we can do. For most of us getting PPP loans, the amount of money we're seeking is small enough that the documentation and review will be less severe for us than it will be for the larger companies and large ones that kind of snuck into PPP and got loans in excess of $2 million, which seems to be the threshold where there will be uh, strict oversight of how the money was used and in what ways it was used. Joel? Clark Lynette says, I've just agreed to be a poll worker for the June election. Now that the shelter-in-place order has been extended for seniors, what will happen to in-person voting? So this is a political football about voting because there are a number of politicians who don't want to make it too easy for people to vote because they think it's bad for their prospects. And so this is going to be one that would best be solved as a public health issue, but is more likely to be looked at through a political lens. I think you're going to see in uh, generally around the country where it will be easier for people to vote alternative ways like in person. And it's kind of crazy we don't have any form of electronic remote voting in the United States yet. But I know this is a surprise to a lot of people. Oregon has voted by mail for as far back as I can remember. That's how people vote. And to date, fortunately, there's been no meaningful reports at any time of voter fraud voting by mail. It would be wise for us if your state permits you to vote by mail that or has some form of liberal absentee ballot procedure right now that that would be the safest way for you to vote as a voter and you help protect those poll workers by reducing the number of people they would come into contact coming in to vote now if you just got really angry at me about that remember we have clark.com slash clark stinks kim and I would like to bring Clark Stinks back soon. I don't want people to think they've been ignored. We have had requests for it. It's just been, we haven't had that many entries for it to really do a segment, but I think we're getting closer and maybe you just made that possible with that statement. How about that? <laughs> All right. This one is from Richard. He says, with the huge drop in employer and employee contributions into the social social security system, do you think benefits will be reduced in the near future? So um, even if coronavirus had not happened, Social Security was facing a math problem. And the math problem didn't mean that benefits would suddenly end, but it meant that the amount of money coming in was not going to be enough to pay benefits promised. So Social Security is going to have to have adjustments that would either, in the worst case, have benefits reduced by uh, 
not necessarily a large percent, but a meaningful percent of benefit dollars would be reduced, or we'll have to change the formula of when people can take Social Security, or we'll have to raise Social Security taxes, or some combination of all of the above, because the math is not going to work. It was not going to work already, but coronavirus has, has sped up that time of reckoning. But don't think that if you, let's say you get, just for argument's sake, $1,000 a month right now, just to keep numbers simple, that suddenly you're going to get a check for $300 a month instead. The haircut, based on the actuarial tables, would be relatively small, but would be terrible for people because many, many Social Security recipients, it's the only money that they have to live on each month which is why Congress is going to have to make tough decisions on uh, when future recipients will actually be able to receive Social Security and what the taxes are going to be on payroll in order to get enough money into the Social Security system. And gosh, that's kind of back-to-back. That probably should get some posts to Clark.com slash Clark Stinks. Joel? All right, they're coming for you. Fast and furious, Clark. Uh, Annette wrote in, she says, thank you for being, uh, thank you for your perseverance during this pandemic. I listen almost every night. I was uh, blessed to get a stimulus check the other day, payable to my husband James and myself for $2,400. But James, my husband, passed away on September 6, 2019. Oh, I'm uh, really sorry you lost your husband. Yeah, she says, I believe I'm only entitled to $1,200 of that money. So how do I return the other portion to the IRS? So at first, there was, um, there was guidance that the money would not have to be returned. And then that changed last week. And people who received uh, stimulus money for people who have passed away before that money is received, that money is supposed to be paid back. But as of yet, I haven't seen the procedure to pay that money back. So that's something that we're going to publish at Clark.com, and I'll let you know on the show when the procedure exists. And again, I'm really sorry about your loss. If you have a question for me, please go to Clark.com ask and post it. And producer Kim, you have a question for me from Clark.com ask. That's right. This is on behalf of Mike. And Mike says, Clark, you stated several times recently that Ticketmaster reversed its earlier position and has agreed to issue refunds for rescheduled or postponed events. I believe this might not be true. I've been looking into a refund and am being told differently. That is true. Ticketmaster has now walked back its walk back. So at first, Ticketmaster said, hey, not our problem. And then there was an uproar from consumers and from several members of Congress. And then Ticketmaster two weeks ago made statements that they were going to uh, make refunds for people. And now they have changed their policy again to pretty much what it was before the pressure came from consumers, the media, and Congress. So now Ticketmaster says in their new frequently asked questions that was posted, I think, on Friday, this past Friday, 
that basically unless the organizer of the event authorizes refunds Ticketmaster says hey there's no refunds that you only get the money back if the singer or band or sports team or whoever says you're going to get your money back so this is obviously going to require more pressure from consumers the media and congress because Ticketmaster is obviously trying to weasel out of what they said they were going to do two weeks ago. And this is completely unacceptable behavior. You know, Ticketmaster charges massive fees every time you buy a ticket and then wishes, in this case, to wash their hands of any responsibility. And if you go to Ticketmaster.com, you'll see the it's slugged updated information about event status refunds and options and it's a bunch of gobbledygook and not our problem it's your problem and that is not acceptable to me and obviously not to you joel clark this one's from brett he says i've yet to get my stimulus check yet i I meet all the qualifications to have it direct deposited nothing's changed with my bank or my address in several years and i've gotten my previous tax refunds directly deposited to my bank account but the irs website continues to say payment status not available is there anything i can do so the irs tool they've worked on repeatedly and it has been um, just an ongoing frustration for people some relatives called me this past weekend and said hey we don't have our money and we can't find anything out on the irs website and so i guess the the fix is still not working i wish i could just wave a magic wand and get you that refund but one crazy suggestion i saw on market watch is put your inquiry in on the irs website all in caps and apparently you're likely to have a better response from the IRS database than just having it in normal letters. Who knows? That sounds like a sign of desperation to me. The podcast normally would end here, but because of the unusual circumstances we're in, we have additional content that we recorded earlier today that I'd like you to have access to. And this will continue day by day as long as the events warrant so we've got two things going on at once in the economy we've got certain sectors that are doing extremely well because they were just in a position to do well when the economy went into reverse big time because of coronavirus obviously the supermarkets the discount stores the warehouse clubs and pizza parlors, just to name a handful of businesses that were just naturals. But at the same time, we've got, depending on the state, somewhere between 18% and 25% of people now unemployed. A lot of people not knowing what's going to happen next, that the job they had is ever coming back. Well, I want to give you a bit of hope about where opportunity might be. There was a study done at uh, Arizona State University and University of Iowa. Researchers 
took data that had been supplied by GoDaddy, and they were looking at how many web addresses in the U.S. were e-commerce micro-businesses and the role that those micro-businesses play in meeting a need or want in the marketplace and providing a living for someone. So many of us have a skill, a hobby, or experience in something that if our old job doesn't look like it's coming back or coming back for a good while, there may be an opportunity for you to reinvent yourself, at least for now, with your own web-based business. There are so many easy ways to plug and play. And I read an inspiring story based on the research that was done by Arizona State, the Wildcats, and the University of Iowa using the GoDaddy data that the New York Times wrote about the experiences of different people starting their own businesses, their micro-businesses, and what they've been able to accomplish. What was really fascinating to me reading the story was how many people had taken things they love, but they'd never really thought of as a way to make money and turned them into a micro-business that provides a living to, to them or they and their families. So know that if the opportunity is not coming the traditional way, at least for now, think about what you offer, what you have, what you can do that might meet a need in the marketplace. Setting up an online business is ultra easy now. And go for it. What do you have to lose? You may find you have a whole new living. And here's something else I wanted to talk about today. We have had so many questions from people about the ability to borrow from a 401k loan at much larger limits than normal, being able to withdraw from a 401k without 10% penalty, and being able to stretch out the taxes over three years, about being able to pull money from an IRA and not pay the 10% penalty that it's led to one scenario after another that people are posing to me about, well, should I do it in this case? Should I do it in that case? And then I've been having questions that have been either or. And what an interesting either or that has now been posed to me by, I think, three people so far. So I want to address this idea. Okay, so... First, let me go back to baseline and what you've heard me say in many different ways to many different questions about this. And it is that although you can withdraw from a 401k, avoid the nasty 10% penalty, and have the ability to pay the tax over three years, or even if you get solidly back on your feet, pay the money back, and no harm, no foul, which you normally can't do, the 401k is a lower choice in the hierarchy about what you do if your wallet is emptying out. So I'm hearing from people who really haven't looked at other options. So that brings up one of the things that I've now been asked a few times. All right, so you know historically when somebody calls me about doing a cash-out refinance, I 
don't exactly jump for joy about that. And I talk about all the reasons I don't like cash-out refis. You pay a higher interest rate if you do a cash-out refi than if you do a traditional straight refi. And often you're taking debt, that shorter-term debt, and you're putting it against the value of your house, and you're then putting your house at risk. But I've been backed into a corner by these questions about whether to tide yourself through the rough loss of income of coronavirus, you're better off doing the 401k or doing a cash-out refi. If you can still qualify for the refi, I like it because it at least keeps your money still there for retirement, still growing for retirement. And ultimately, what happens is we think about when things get really rough, we're like, yeah, it'd be great to have that money for retirement, but I want to focus on today. Well, the advantage of doing the cash-out refi in today's economy is the interest rates, if your credit's good, are so very low on that cash-out refi. Even paying a higher rate than you would for a straight refi, it still is a great opportunity. Now, I wouldn't want you to go from already having a phenomenal rate to taking a higher interest rate to do a cash-out refi. But if you can stay the same or even drop your rate, which many people can do, doing the cash-out refi to tide yourself over may be a good idea. Now, the alternative is to do a home equity line of credit. The terms are not as good, but it's more temporary debt if you expect that your time of tumult financially is measured in months, I prefer the home equity line of credit to either of the other two alternatives. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.